Hi, everyone. I'm Dan Loney, host of Wharton Business Daily on Sirius XM 132. During this unprecedented time in dealing with the coronavirus outbreak, our show has focused a great deal on how we all can get through this crisis. It's a question facing everyone, consumers, employees, and businesses alike. To provide context and insight, we've interviewed six University of Pennsylvania professors who are part of a new Wharton School six-week class titled Managing Uncertainty. It's designed for students within the Wharton School and across the university so that they can learn how organizations need to look at the issues like global uncertainty and extreme risk. On this podcast, Wharton on Managing Uncertainty, you'll hear the professors talk about the themes they will discuss with the students, ranging from healthcare, leadership, and global markets like Wall Street. First up is Wharton Dean Jeff Garrett talking about how the course came about and his view on the impact this coronavirus outbreak is making globally. We had the chance to speak with him back on March 19th. Dean Garrett, great to have you with us today. Thank you for your time, sir. Dan, it's my pleasure to be with you, and thanks a million for all you're doing. It's so important. Thank you very much. I, I'll start with, with that if I can. And, and just you, you are so uh, focused on so many aspects of our economy and globally. As you have seen what has played out over the last uh, few days, how do you view the impact it has had and, and where you think we are going as, as, a, as, a, as a country and as a, a group of nations? Well, look, Dan, I mean, I think this is literally unprecedented, so it's pretty hard to be confident about the future. But in in terms of economic management, you know, I really see two things. The first one is thinking about how to slow down the downturn. And obviously, that's what we're talking about with fiscal stimulus, the Fed and everything else. But then the second part will be once we get to the bottom if we want it to be a V, we shouldn't be passive. So what are the things we can be starting to think about that'll, that'll accelerate the recovery um, once we get to that point? So it's, it, obviously it's understandable we're focusing now on trying to slow down the downturn. But I think thinking about what a recovery would look like and how we could be actively involved is just going to become more and more important. I mentioned the class that the Wharton School will be doing uh, for students uh, once the spring semester kicks back up again. If you can, take us through the decision process by Wharton to to make the call to do a class like this. Well, it was actually pretty close to instantaneous. We were just managing, in essence, uh, our closing down of, of on-campus activity and moving everything remote. And that was, you know, that that was just all stress and, in essence, managing downside risk. And somebody had the thought that um, we we should be trying to do something positive in this environment. And we came up literally overnight with this managing uncertainty class that my colleague Barry Gien is going to lead. And I think, you know, it, it for me it says two things. The first one is that Wooden is not an ivory tower. We want to be rigorous and relevant, and we want to do that in real time, and, and this is an example of that. The second, in terms of what it means for our students, of course we want to help them understand what's going on, but it's so important for everybody to feel that they're engaged, that they're still part of a community, and I hope that this class will help in that regard too. And what I think is interesting is when you look at the topics that are listed as part of this course and the the individuals that will be teaching it does highlight what we are seeing on a global perspective right now is that there are so many different touch points that are being impacted by uh, this outbreak. Yeah, it's literally an across-the-board crisis. So I'm so pleased that we have leading experts on public health, uh, what's the pandemic really all about, and then markets and the economy, uh, the role of the Fed and the government, um, what does it mean for leadership both in in government, but also in the private sector. What's the future of globalization? Uh, We're all learning to work remotely. Is that the future of work? You know, this crisis is literally touching every aspect of society. So it's touching every aspect of the school. And we're just lucky that the scale and scope of the Wharton School means that we have real experts on all of these issues. Jeff Garrett, Dean of the Wharton School, uh, joining us uh, here on Wharton Business Daily. You know, part of of what the school teaches uh, each and every year deals with so many different aspects of business. And and I'm sure that, you know, risk and dealing with uncertainty is part of that on a normal basis. But what we're talking about here now is so unique 
and, and such a, an experience that really nobody has gone through that it truly is a, a new avenue of business for students to learn about. Yeah, no question. And and you talked about managing risk, and clearly that's so vitally important. But I also think we're going to be rethinking what leadership means, and and I think a school like Wharton can play a leading role in that. You know, we're, we're, even before the coronavirus, we were living in a world that was so unpredictable, where things change so rapidly and where facts are contested. That's now all on steroids because of the crisis. And I think it's, a, it's an incredible challenge for leaders. Um, and I think we're going to need different kinds of leaders, not the sort of heroic Winston Churchill World War II story, but... But something where people, where leaders are going to, uh, where trust is going to be essential, and I think the way for leaders to develop trust is is by being more real. Uh, we've seen, I think, increasing humility out of government leaders, for example, admitting that they just don't know everything and they need lots of help. I, I think being humble is important. Second element of leadership, I think, today is all about being open and transparent about what's really going on. You shouldn't focus group things. You shouldn't massage the truth. You've just got to be open. And then the last one that I think is going to be so important is to be committed, be committed to your core values. That's what younger people have wanted. You know, I think I think millennials and Gen Z are much more uh, mission-driven, they're purpose-oriented, and leaders are going to have to be able to leverage that commitment by being committed themselves. So, so I think managing risk where you started is so important, but I, but I think we're going to see a transformation in what effective leadership means as well, and obviously that business schools like Wharton should be in the vanguard of that. Well, we're seeing right now, Jeff, uh, so much commentary about what should be done or what shouldn't be done. You know, one of the things that caught my attention yesterday were the comments of Bill Ackman of, of Pershing Square Capital calling for a 30-day break, a 30-day spring break for the country right now. I mean, we are talking about so many different extreme ideas that are coming out about how you kind of wrap your hands around keeping some strength in the, in the economy right now. Yeah, and, and, and I don't think that idea of a break is the right one because, you know, we've really got to do two things, I think. One is to keep economic activity going as well as we can um, and in a world of remote work. And uh, the good news there is that so much of economic activity these days, uh, certainly in the U.S., is about the service sector uh, as opposed to manufacturing. And in the service sector, remote work is just more plausible. Um, the second thing is we need some consumption in the economy, and that's really challenged, uh, obviously, in the retail sector, which has been so face-to-face. But again, there's good news there. We're learning. We'd already knew, we already knew that retail could go online and remote, and, and clearly that's, that trend is going to continue as well. So, so just a giant break on the economy uh, strikes me as a bad idea. We need to keep the economy going on both the production and the, and the consumption side, and frankly, the best way to do that is to leverage technology. I guess there are still so many unknowns from the medical side of this story, but on the business side, you hear quite a bit of commentary of obviously we're feeling the impact now uh, at the end of the first quarter. There's a lot of expectations for a significant downturn in the second quarter, but it seems like there are a lot of uh, economists that believe the second half of this year we could see a bounce back. Are, Are you optimistic or pessimistic for the back half of this year? Well, look, I, I I always want to be an optimist by nature, but I think one has to be a realistic optimist as well. Um, I don't know when when the recovery will happen. I am still reasonably optimistic uh, about it being the recovery being more V-shaped than U-shaped. But as I said, I think we should be not just expecting that to happen. Uh, those of us on the, you know, who have anything to do with production should be thinking about how we can ramp back up as quickly as possible. And I can tell you, even in, inside the Wharton School, which have, of course is an educational institution, but we have to run it like a business, we're thinking very much about that. Once things turn, once we can get back to focusing on the economy, how can we 
maximize and speed up the upside? That That's going to be an increasingly important question. You know, we'll have a leading indicator in the world, I think, which will be China in the second quarter. Uh, Q1 in China, obviously, is, is going to be really, really negative. I mean, all the indicators look at, that, that I've looked at uh, show about a minus 30% on some key indicators in, in Q1 in China. Uh, but, of course, China's turned the corner now, and, and let's see how quickly they can recover Um uh, it, you know, obviously, the American and Chinese economies are so different, but there are probably some lessons we're going to be able to learn from what happens in China, which in essence is three months further down this path than we are in America. Appreciate your time today, uh, you being out on the West Coast and joining us early from out there. Thank you, Dean Garrett. Appreciate it. Uh, thank you, Dan. And again, thanks for everything you're doing. Thank no problem. Doing. Glad to do it. Uh, Wharton School Dean Jeff Garrett joining us here on the show. Next up is Wharton finance professor Jeremy Siegel. He joined us on March 6th to discuss how the coronavirus outbreak was impacting Wall Street. As for Wall Street right now, the stocks are lower. Dow Jones Industrial Average down almost 700 points, 25,423. The Nasdaq off 244 and the S&P 500 down 87. It has been a roller coaster ride for Wall Street over the last week as fears of coronavirus have been stoking big losses and big gains. Meanwhile, focus will be soon placed on first quarter GDP and how that may have been impacted by the outbreak. We start out our look today with Wharton Professor Jeremy Siegel, who joins me here in studio. You also hear him as co-host of Behind the Markets every Friday at noon here on Sirius XM 132. Great seeing you, Professor, as always. Happy to be here, Don. Give us your sense of, of, of what we have seen over the last week with Wall Street and how this may very well play out in the months ahead, because you've already gone on record and seeing that this is not just a couple-of-month impact. We may be looking at this throughout the course of 2020. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, okay, so <laughs> where where should we begin? Um, it certainly... Uh, I think earnings are going to be dramatically affected this year. Um, and analysts are always very slow to put down earnings uh, because they concentrate on micro factors. They're, they concentrate on firms. They're not really geared to try to project what's going to happen. We could have a 20% decline in earnings mm. um, uh, from this year, which would which would be dramatic, which would be of a recession magnitude. Uh, on the economy side, it's not out of the question that we could have a recession, uh, which is informally defined as two consecutive declining quarters of, of real activity. Uh, all that aside, what I have been stressing is that when you're thinking about stocks, in fact, when you're thinking about any long-term assets, one has to realize that over 90% of the value of those stocks is dependent on profits more than 12 months out sure. into the future. Right. So, yes, we could have very bad earnings in the second quarter um, and in the third quarter and maybe even in the fourth quarter. Right. If we believe that even the 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 experts say that and, and and we know through experience that these viruses they have their big impact and then they're self-limiting um that we bounce back in 2021 sure so what what i'm looking at is a pretty bad 2020 right uh uh but I'm looking for a bounce back in 21. And, and even more so because we, you and I talked at the beginning of this year and you had already kind of baked in. Obviously, we weren't going to see the kind of growth we saw in 2020, no matter what we were talking about. It was already about. too high. Right, exactly. So even off of that pared back view you had, you're obviously coming even further back oh, yeah. from what we what we should see throughout this the year. course of the year. Yeah. I mean, I, first of all, the 10% increase we said was ridiculous. I said, you know, we'll more likely get five. That was without the virus. Right, right. Now we could get minus 20. Uh, we could get minus 30. But again, if we bounce back next year, the impact on long-lived assets, which stocks are, yeah. is not that 20, 30%. You don't go down for a one-year drop. You don't then drop 
because then everyone will say, well, it gets over it and it'll be 20 and 30 percent next year. Sure. Yeah. So really, when you do the math, it's less than 10 percent as a drop. Now, we've gotten more than 10 percent so far, certainly, first of all, because we were riding too high at sure. the beginning. And sure. I said that momentum driven market, I was worried about it with yeah. you here. Yeah. Uh, in January moment. So, you know, the, the, the boom was off way too, too uh, strong a rose back in January. That's five, six, seven percent. Um, and now we're six, seven, eight percent from now. Now, with all that said, can we go down? We have not had a bear market since the 29 crowd, which is defined as a 20 percent decline. Right. You know, uh, we're what we're, we're at 15 now. We could definitely have that. Yes. I mean, would that shock me? Not in the least. So then what was your reaction then to the Fed making the rate cut? It was the right thing to do. In fact, on Monday morning on CNBC, I called for a 50 basis point rate cut. Okay. And, you know, people say, oh, Jeremy, what's that going to do and all that? Or let me, let me just mention what that's going to do. Um, hundreds of billions of dollars of loans are pegged to the Fed's rate. Uh, prime rates... LIBOR rates, all sorts of business rates are pegged to that rate. Right. Uh, the fact they lowered it a half percent means that rate goes down. This is very important for businesses because, you know, restaurants and others who are borrowing on a monthly basis at this what's called LIBOR rate. Yeah. Uh, it's down now a half a percent. Yeah. That, it, sure. I mean, it, it'll help. It'll give them a few thousand dollars more. In, in these months, they won't have to pay on interest. And the other thing that within the comments that Jay Powell made, he and we just talked about this a moment ago before we went on the air, is that he still made he wanted to make sure that he said that the fundamentals of the U.S. economy are still strong. And, and I guess to a degree, when you look at the jobs numbers, which oh, yeah. came out we, today, we didn't talk about that. We normally that's what we will talk about today. Yeah. Uh, and it is looking through the rear view mirror, certainly. I mean, but wow. I mean, I, I looked at this report and I said, Thank God. It's like, look, if a patient is going to get sick, you know what the doctors say is the most important thing? He goes into that sickness being healthy. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that will mean that he or she will recover the fastest. Uh, that And that is exactly what we see the U.S. economy. U.S. economy is going to receive bad uh, bumps. There's no question about it. But the fact that we are going into that as healthy as we can be is a very strong positive. So there are going to be bumps in the road over the course of 2020. And so I guess it's still, even though you would you would have some positive outlook towards 2021, do you still need to see how all of this plays out this year to see what exactly that level of recovery might be next and, year? And we don't know. I mean, that's, that's what the all uncertainty is. I yeah. mean, how, how bad, you know, will this spread to everybody, et cetera? And are they going to basically close? Are we going to be... In a lockdown like China. Yeah. Now, one thing that I'm going to say something that even surprises me. <laughs> uh, but uh, but I look at, as you know, all markets. Yes. Would it surprise you if I told you that right now the Shanghai Composite Index, which is the most popular index in China, is now higher than it was yeah. last November before they had a single case of coronavirus in China. It would not. Uh, well, I mean, it, it, people, how can that be? Yeah. They've yeah. been in lockdown. They're going to have a recession. They're going to have 7 to 8% down, down GDP in the quarter. Yeah. And look at their indexes. It, it spiked. They're getting it under control, or they hope it's under control. But those people say, you know what? I, I'm going to look further out do you expect then to see more rate cuts this year in the oh, u.s yes, we should and, and then okay then i'll, I'll also have ask you to add on what yeah. do you expect it to be on the global side because i think the expectation was late last week of whether or not there would be some sort of coordinated, coordinated effort you had the g7 conference call between the finance ministers we haven't seen anything outside of well, the u.s except for australia right now yeah that's true i think canada went too i'm not sure okay. yeah but but well one of the things is we're well way above zero yeah. You know, we were, yeah. you know, at two, above two at one point. They were never really got off of zero. They got up a little bit. Right. So they don't, they don't have that margin. Thank you very much for your time. All the best. Thank you. Wharton management professor Sigal Barsad also joined us on March the 6th to discuss the idea of emotional contagion and how events like this COVID-19 outbreak can take an emotional toll. 
How much is the conversation in the workplace about coronavirus? Has your company asked employees to work from home more often? How worried are you about your kids in school and them being impacted? These are all emotional moments on varying levels. And there's a concern about something called emotional contagion impacting how we are reading the conversations around coronavirus. Sigal Barsad is a management professor here at the Wharton School. She's actually looking at the issue and research she's currently doing, and she joins us on the phone right now. Sigal, great to talk to you again. Great to talk to you, too. Okay, let's start with what exactly emotional contagion is. Sure. So emotional contagion is the phenomenon that we um, literally almost, you know, we, we catch emotions from one another. And um, and it's funny because it's often considered in sort of a, a viral model. And the way the way that it works is that um, you know, one person is, let's say, smiling or very tense. And it's a largely automatic process. And so what happens is we catch each other's facial expression and body language and tone through something called behavioral mimicry, which is uh, infants as young as six weeks old do this. And so we're really kind of bred to do this. And so we mimic the other people. And then through a variety of physiological processes, we actually feel the emotion that we've just mimicked. Now, what makes emotional contagion um, so problematic, particularly when it's negative emotional contagion, is that what our studies have shown is that we don't realize it is happening. And so what happens is that we, you know, we're feeling that emotion and we don't think, oh, you know, I'm really worried about the coronavirus because I've just, you know, heard my workmates talk about it for the past 20 minutes. It's all I heard about on the news on the way in and out. You know, we, we think, oh, wow, we're incredibly anxious and fearful. So we must have really a reason to be anxious and fearful. So then how then does this relate to 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 this bout with coronavirus and COVID-19? Yeah. So um, I, I would argue that um, that emotional contagion is, um, it, unless we get a hold of it, is going to greatly amplify the damage caused by COVID-19. Because, you know, Thank goodness, you know, most people are not going to get COVID-19, but a very, very, very high percentage of us are going to be emotionally contagious negatively. And then the thing is, it's not then that you just feel anxiety and nothing happens, right? Although that in its own right is unpleasant. You know, for all the people who are home and just really worrying about it, that in its own right is already a negative outcome. But in addition, our emotions influence our behavior and our decision-making. And that's something else we really know from the research literature. And one of the things we also know from the research literature is that negative emotions, um, particularly fear and anxiety, really cause us to become very rigid in our decision-making. We're not creative. We're not as analytical. And so we actually make worse decisions. And emotional contagion um, affects everyone, which means that it, it can also affect leaders. It can affect policymakers. Um, you know, it's it's not um, they have a little bit more um, kind of protection because they have at least the policymakers and experts, you know, really have a good knowledge of the facts. But if you're not aware that emotional contagion is influencing you, you could make poorer decisions. So what then do you recommend people need to consider to do, uh, especially with, with all of this, this, uh, this belief out there right now? Right. And so um, the good news is that, um, you know, you, you can be inoculated uh, to a certain degree against emotional contagion. And there are very, very specific things that, that you can do. The first is actually what this, this radio program is doing right now, which is know that emotional contagion exists. That really is just that knowledge is a form of inoculation and it's and and in its own right, because we have data from other subconscious processes that when we know of something that's more automatic and we know about it, that actually helps us to realize that and to resist it. And so, you know, if you're feeling incredibly anxious or fearful, ask yourself, you know, 
are are you really you know do you really have a reason to feel this way or you know is it your friends or your social media feeds or or news from non-expert sources you know that is leading you to feel that way well yeah go ahead finish up Um, so that well well, that's the the first thing there are a couple of other things that you can also do about it um which is you can also try um again because it's automatic you can try to reduce the amount of feedback in so lessen the amount that you look at, you know, um, news that's not from experts, you know, social media, or even bringing it up with others at work um, or your cashier at the supermarket or your family. Um, you know, on the one hand, this is a really natural topic of conversation for everyone. and But there's not a whole lot to say about it at this point. And so most of what's said about it involves fears or stories that are interesting, which are mainly negative. And, you know, I've been hearing from people all over the country where, you know, their coworkers are, you know, talking about, well, we shouldn't let anybody in who comes from a state that has had the coronavirus. <laughs> right. Or, or, you know, right. complaining that they can't buy, you know, Clorox wipes or that, you know, how they woke up in the middle of the night and kind of had a little bit of a, of a sore throat and took their fever immediately because they were afraid of it. And what that does is, again, it just it just feeds in to the emotional contagion. Well, that, that and let me jump in here for one second, because that's it's an important topic. And obviously we're trying to do this show and try and bring as much information out as we possibly can. But we are in a time in this country and in our society where there is more media and more contact points mm-hmm. than we've ever seen. And, yeah. and if if it's social media, if you're on Twitter or Facebook, if you're, you know, I, I'm sitting here in the studio with, uh, with a, a business radio channel, a business news mm-hmm. channel on TV, following, it, it's it's everywhere. It, it, yeah. there, you just can't get away from it well, at this point. You know, it's very funny because actually you you led beautifully to my third point, which is don't ignore it. So. The, the, the way to avoid emotional contagion um, d- doesn't mean that you put your head in the sand and you're like, okay, everything's great. This isn't happening. But it's, in, in fact, to the contrary, you should stay alert so that you can get other information kind of in, right? But be, be judicious about the information that you're taking in, right? Try to turn to healthcare and health policy experts and behavioral you know, science experts like the show you're doing now. And even, you know, go to multiple experts, like look at the CDC and the World Health Organization and the NIH and the financial, you know, like I'm not, I mean, it, that actually can also help with contagion because you're, you're feeding in other affective information um, and cognitive information that's going to help you. Right. So I would say, yes, you know, it is hard to avoid, but it's also, it's also being very purposeful and making the decision that you're going to carry on with your life. And, um, and, and actually it's, it's interesting in that regard, because when you, when you get emotional contagion and you're feeling more fearful and anxious, even, you know, for example, even as an expert in emotional contagion, I, that doesn't mean that I don't feel fearful and anxious, right? right? It's not meant to kind of reduce it entirely. But when I feel fearful and anxious, I'm like, okay, I, I stop myself and I'm like, all right, how much of this is really me? Yeah. And because it, you know, and how much of it is everything else? And I'll tell you, and this is what a lot of your show has also been about, is the thing that is dangerous about emotional contagion in a COVID-19 situation or any, you know, public health or, or um, other situation is that it can lead to really problematic second order effects, right? right. And that's, that's what your speakers have been talking about, um, bo- both personally in the form of fear and anxiety, but also societally. So for example, the Surgeon General in treating people to not hoard masks that they really don't need, but healthcare workers do need so they don't infect other people, right? Right. Um, or the secondary pain of all the economic consequences that that you know you've been talking about. And so one of the things as you're thinking about emotional contagion is to think, you know, don't do more than what you're being asked to do um, by the healthcare expert. And of course, if you are asked to do something or you need to be quarantined, there's no question, right? But if you do extra things out of panic, then worse things can happen. And I think there's a tremendous pressure right now on leaders and organizations to take extreme action. 
um, both as kind of a moral high ground and liability, right? right? So, so, but what we don't put into that equation when we're making those decisions and we're canceling things that maybe we have not been asked to cancel is what is the further damage that could come from that and how long can you do that? Is there a, a, a dynamic when you're thinking about emotional contagion of the level of severity that may be at play? Like thinking about, you know, something that may occur here in Philadelphia that is a significant event that impacts people here in the Philadelphia area is obviously much different than what we're talking about here with coronavirus or going back in time, thinking about the recession or mm -hmm. thinking about 9-11 or, you know, yeah. all of these other events that are on a more national scope. You know, it's interesting you say that because um, uh, one of the things, for example, that happened in the in the last huge um, uh, economic downturn, um, uh, for what it's worth, I was saying the same thing because what was what was happening there is that even though it was national in scope, again, the contagion is automatic, right? So it's a question of how much are you being affected by it. You're still seeing it on the news, and one of the things that happened in the in that huge downturn is that people who were not at financial risk. Because they're getting all this stuff coming at them and they're hearing all these stories, they genuinely become anxious. Again, I should make it clear, you really feel this way. It's not like cognitive and that, you know, you really feel that way. And then they were restricting their spending, which then led to even worse effects, right? So what I would say is, you know, of course, it gets, it, it does get even more intense when it becomes closer to you. And the reason for that is because you hear more and more and you do have more of a legitimate fear that something might affect you. Right. You know, so, so yes, but national events can be remarkably powerful. Yeah. 9-11, you know, yes, actually there were studies that showed that people in, in Manhattan were more affected from a, from a psychological health perspective. But so were people farther out in the country, too. Yep, absolutely. Seagal, greatly appreciate your time today. Uh, thank you for coming on. I look forward to seeing you again down the road. Thank you. And thank you for doing this show. Thank you, Seagal. Thanks. Seagal Barsad, management professor here at the Wharton School. On March the 11th, Wharton professor of management, Mauro Guillen, shared what he would discuss with students in the course Managing Uncertainty and how we need to look at this outbreak on more of a global scale. Wharton Management Professor Mauro Guillen is spearheading this offering, and he joins us here in studio. Great to see you, Mauro. Thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. Why do you, th you think this course is obviously needed at this point? Well, this was uh, a class that uh, was proposed by the dean's office uh, at Wharton just a week ago. They contacted me asking, uh, would you uh, do this again? Because I had launched a similar class uh, 12 years ago in 2008, just after Lehman Brothers. And it's very important for the school to do something like this. First, to be responsive to uh, worldwide events. Second, to offer students uh, a chance of learning about uh, the topic. And that's, uh, thirdly, and quite importantly, is also to show uh, the, the breadth of expertise that the Wharton School has. So every, every day of class, uh, we're going to have two different uh, Wharton professors teaching, and they're going to tell us about, from their perspective, uh, how business needs to be prepared and what, what, what's the likely impact of this going to be. So when you think about those areas, what, what are the, the focal points that, that really will be brought up most likely in this, in this course offering? Well, we're going to cover, obviously, the more important, uh, most important topics such as, uh, you know, the nature of this pandemic, uh, how far it may be, uh, you know, spreading around the world. We have Zeke Emanuel, uh, whom, if you remember, sure. yeah. on, on our faculty, yeah. but uh, he was instrumental to bringing Obamacare yeah. to life uh, during the uh, those years in the White House. Uh, also, uh, Jeremy Siegel on the markets, uh, with the reaction by the market. So we're going to do all of those topics that, of course, should be in the class. But we're also going to have other topics, such as, for example. Um, the uh, disruption of supply chains. Uh, we're going to take a look at uh, telecommuting and teleworking uh, and whether this is going to change. We're going to take a look at crisis management. Uh, we're also going to have uh, presenters on uh, the management of surprise. Uh, so what do you do when you're completely surprised sure. when, when the uh, the rug is uh, you know pulled from underneath your feet? Uh, how do you manage an organization? Uh, under those uh, circumstances? And uh, also quite um, intriguingly, we're also going to cover emotional contagion. 
and actual contagion in an epidemic such as this. So, yeah. as you know, there's a lot of commentary out there uh, as to whether we are panicking or whether the response is appropriate or not. So, Sigal Barset, also from our yep. faculty, is going to be telling us about emotional contagion in the context of a public health crisis such as this. Yeah, we just talked with her a couple of days ago about uh, about that aspect as well. This, I, I guess, to a degree, then, uh, you have to consider this a teachable moment uh, when you talk about what you're seeing right now. But... I think when you look larger at all of the different types of events that may occur in the course of time, uh, going back to the recession and then obviously 9-11 and all these different elements, they probably all have some some similarities to how you deal with them. Uh, yes. And uh, I, I say this, unfortunately, that it is a teachable moment. I, I would prefer not to be facing sure. uh, you know, these circumstances. I think we all would. Uh, but yes, I mean, we are uh, increasingly or more frequently getting into these sorts of uh, troubles. And uh, they are teachable from the point of view of, uh, well, if uh, they're becoming the new normal, meaning if every two or three years we're going to go into a crisis such as this uh, for one reason or another, then we have uh, to be prepared uh, as a nation, as organizations, and that we have to prepare our students. And that's our role as educators, and that's my role as an educator. So I want uh, uh, my students uh, to be able to, um, you know, um, uh, download, so to speak, uh, yeah. a frame of mind whenever yeah. this happens. Uh, so I want them to acquire those kinds of skills while they are at Wharton. The, the interesting part is also it's not just Wharton students that will be able to take part in this. The, the entire University of Pennsylvania community would be able to get involved in this, students that are on campus as well. Uh, correct. So we're admitting uh, as many students as wish to join us. Uh, we're going to have an online component to the class. Uh, we have uh, 450 right now. Uh, and they come from all corners of the university. So we have uh, Wharton students, we have non-Wharton students, meaning Penn students, undergraduates, graduates, uh, everybody. Is that mindset, then, as you've talked with your students over even the last decade, is that mindset of, of recognizing that risk is a component that could be out there, is that kind of in their minds as they're going through their time here at school. I, I think it is, but uh, keep in mind that it's not just risk. Risk is when you can calculate the odds, when you can uh, you know, quantify right. the probability. Uh, here we're talking about uncertainty, yeah. uh, which is a situation in which you cannot calculate probabilities. And unfortunately, and I think uh, we've been thinking along these lines for a long time, even here uh, in some of our interviews, yeah. uncertainty has become the new normal. Um, so uh, for the last uh, 15 years or so, it's one thing after another that generates so much uncertainty. We see that reflected in the markets. We see that reflected in uh, the decisions that people make uh, every day. We see that that consumption is not uh, where, you sh where it should be. And that's because there's so much uncertainty. When, yeah. when that happens, then consumers don't spend. Uh, so this spells trouble, uh, but we need to get used to it. Uh, we need to understand that perhaps uncertainty has become the new normal. As you alluded to a couple of moments ago, I think it's interesting in looking at the roster of professors that you've assembled for this, uh, that when you think about this level of uncertainty, it's not just one area that you focus on. There are so many different areas that you can pull from to kind of gather information, gather understanding about how you deal with point X, point Y, point Z in terms of dealing with these situations. Oh, absolutely. We need to understand how investors react, how consumers react, how savers react. But we also want to um, get an understanding as to how employees are supposed to yeah. uh, behave in this situation. Not everybody will be able to stay at home and work from home. Uh, so how do we manage a situation in which we're going to have both at least uh, for a while? Uh, so it goes from the very macro all the way to the very micro, right? Uh, and I think it affects every single function within the firm. Is that one of the bigger challenges then for, for companies, do you think, these days, of, of thinking both sides of, of the spectrum here? You obviously have the macro which are, are very important elements. And in many cases, if you're a publicly traded company, it may be to the bottom line. But even the smallest elements that you have to think about in terms of thinking about your employees and their care and making sure that they are safe in a situation like this. No, absolutely. That's really important. And then the other dimension, of course, is you need to prepare not just for what's coming next week or the week after, but you also need to prepare for the moment in which the economy will recover. And sure. hopefully this pandemic will be behind us. Uh, so it's a very, very uh, difficult balancing act. You need to prepare for the recovery as well. Does that also now that I would think has to fit in to companies and, and, and executives long term thinking, not just in the next with this case in the next six to 12 months, but you have to be thinking five to 10 years that as a component of the overall process. Yes, I think you have to keep your eye on the ball. 
and to keep it uh, over the medium run to long run, meaning, as you just said, five to 10 years, I think it's appropriate. But of course, right now, most companies, most decision makers need to um, you know, uh, make a choice uh, you know, in the next uh, week, in the next uh, 24 hours uh, yeah. for what's going to happen next. So it's a, again, it's a, from a leadership point of view, I think it's a very, very hard, very tough uh, balancing act. And uh, we also want to, um, you know, have that as part of this class. And in fact, uh, Geoff Garrett, our dean, is going to be addressing precisely that issue. One of the things that is also unique to this is that it will not only be, as you alluded to before, a course that will be in classrooms, but it will also be an online component as well. So it gives you both options in this in this instance. No, absolutely, because we have students. Remember that are part-time students, so they're not full-time on campus. So um, most of them will be taking this class uh, online, our executive MBA students. Uh, and there may be other students who uh, might prefer to take it online or they happen to be uh, doing a program abroad or something else. Uh, so, yes, we're offering the option of both in-class and online. How important then is to have these types of offerings moving forward in general at universities uh, here at the University of Pennsylvania, at the Wharton School, but in general across the United States, do you think, right now? Well, you mean uh, moving uh, classes Mo online? Well, and moving forward, just that having this mindset of thinking about uncertainty well, in general. Well, I think we need to become more nimble and more flexible. And we need to have a protocol in place for responding to situations such as this. So, yes, we've had 9-11. We've had the global financial crisis. We've had other epidemics like SARS or MERS. Uh, but this one is uh, striking at the very heart of what we do. And uh, it's a very mysterious illness. And it's already a pandemic. Over 100 countries have uh, reported uh, uh, cases. Uh, so, it's uh, again, it imposes on us, I think, uh, an even greater measure of uh, flexibility in, uh, in order for us to respond effectively as an educational institution. It, it also then, it expands just how many people need to think about these particular options. Obviously, the university and the Wharton School are thinking about it. We have, uh, obviously, Washington, D.C. that is thinking about it. Business leaders are thinking about it. A and the hope is that we will all be able to come together and be able to find the right path to be able to go down this, you know, to be able to get the cure and to be able to have the economy recover. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we want to be prepared for all of that, for, you know, the, the tough weeks ahead and also for the recovery. The, the courses that you will be offering specifically, let's dig into those for, uh, for a little bit. You talked about the variety of different areas that, that will be touched on, the variety of different uh, university experts that will be brought on here. Go through those if you can for a moment, and, and let's touch on just those different areas. Because I said with the breadth uh, of of areas that we have to look at in this, there are so many different touch points that would be that will be important here. Yes. Yeah, so uh, first and foremost, uh, we want to convey to the students a sense as to the scale and the scope of this pandemic, uh, and uh, we also want to um, give them a way of thinking about why the markets are responding in the way they are responding, and what is it that companies are doing. Uh, but then we also want to uh, go deeper into the more micro aspects. Uh, like, for example, we're going to have uh, Katie Milkman tell us about uh, what kinds of uh, incentives or nudges can you introduce to elicit the right kind of behavior on the part of everyone involved yeah. so that they don't take unusual risks, uh, so that um, nonetheless they, they get their work done, uh, and so on and so forth. Uh, we're also going to be uh, examining how this may change, for example, the a relationship between the U.S. and other countries in the world. Yeah. Uh, is this going to have any implications uh, globally for borders? Uh, we're going to have one of our campus experts, uh, Beth uh, Simmons, uh, who is a professor at Wharton as well as at, at the Law School and the School of Arts and Sciences, tell us about uh, how this may change the meaning of borders in the world. Uh, remember, in a world that we thought was borderless, yeah. right? Yeah. But borders are coming back. Uh, and uh, we're also going to take a look at, uh, as I mentioned earlier, uh, emotional contagion. And uh, quite frankly, uh, I think uh, the whole uh, problem of uh, how companies can, um, you know, function with uh, many of their employees staying at home is very important. Uh, so telecommuting, telework, virtual teams, and luckily we have Martin Haas on the faculty of Wharton, and he's going to tell us um, how uh, or to what extent these kinds of arrangements uh, can, uh, can help us. Um, we're also going to have, uh, uh, finally, a session on uh, the law. Uh, and uh, sure. drawing lessons from climate law and how that may be, um, you know, applicable 
to uh, situations in, um, in the wake of a pandemic such as this, for example, the insurance implications. So insurance companies uh, you know, are going to be yeah. greatly affected by this, right? A lot of cancellations of events, a lot of cancellations of travel. There's insurance uh, products involved. Uh, so we're also going to take a look at that. In other words, uh, what we're offering here is a 360-degree view from the macro to the micro and then across different levels and, uh, you know, exploring all of the different ramifications of, uh, uh, of an emergency situation such as this. How much do you think that then this instance of dealing with coronavirus, and obviously it's, it's again, part of, of what we've seen with other occurrences, you know, the, the recession, 9-11 and such, but how much do you think this one, with all of the publicity and all of the conversation about it, maybe does change the mindset of a lot of people on a lot of different aspects uh, of this area of uncertainty. Yeah, it might. Um, it is a simultaneously a demand shock and a supply shock, right? It started as a supply shock in China, you know, factories not working, yep. therefore we're running out of components, but then it be quickly became a demand shock. Then we are in the middle of an election year, so this is going to have consequences of how the campaign is run. I mean, no big <laughs> events, no rallies, no uh, those sorts of things. And then, of course, uh, you know, uh, plenty of blame for the politicians to allocate uh, yeah. among themselves as to who's responding well and who isn't. Uh, and then on top of that, I think the other factor that I think is really important that we're also going to cover in this class is the geopolitical aspect of it. So we went into this pandemic uh, two or three months ago. Uh, in a context in which, uh, uh, you know, the United States, uh, Europe, uh, Japan, uh, China, they were all fighting over a, a whole range of issues, primarily yeah. about trade. Um, so uh, that's another concern of mine, that, that we don't have cooperation now. And I believe that, strongly believe that we need coordinated action on the parts of governments around the world to minimize the impact of this pandemic. And, and, and I guess then when you look at Europe for a, a couple of seconds where this is concerned, you have obviously what has occurred in, in Italy, but then you have the comments of, of Angela Merkel uh, in Germany about how much this may impact their economy. And, and we still haven't heard a lot from France, from the UK at this point, but I think the expectation is we're going to continue to hear more from a variety of different locations as we move along. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And then let's not forget the more tragic aspect of this. Uh, so the people who are dying. Yeah. And as you know, it's um, uh, primarily hitting people above a certain age or people with certain uh, pre-existing conditions. And our healthcare system, uh, not just here, also in Italy and many other places, is already overwhelmed. Yeah. Uh, so that's the, the, the more tragic side of this story. And we're also going to cover this in the class, of course. Uh, so we should do whatever we can to protect those groups that are more exposed to the virus. There's a lot of people who get the virus and then apparently they get better and, uh, and uh, there are no major consequences for them. Uh, but there are people who are passing away, yeah. unfortunately, as a result of, uh, of this virus. Great seeing you. Thank you for coming in. Ken Smetters, who's a Wharton professor of business economics and public policy, joined Wharton Business Daily on March 20th to discuss what investors and businesses should be thinking about. Kent, great to catch up with you. Good talking with you too, Dan. Thank you. I guess let's start with the course that you will be part of. From your perspective, the importance of, of having something like this, uh, especially now to address uh, these issues, how important is that in your mind? Yeah, I mean, at a high level, the, I think the course has two objectives. In the short run, I think the goal is to you know, create some calm by providing better information, discussing better possible options that can be taken at this point. But there's also a longer run issue, and that is COVID-19 certainly won't be the last virus. In fact, it's not even the first one in its virus family. It's basically SARS-2. And if you look at SARS-1 almost 20 years ago, South Korea and the United States seemed fairly immune. And even the joke at the time was that South Korea benefited from having a diet rich in kimchi. And so <laughs> No, SARS-2 obviously hit them much harder. And what's the big difference between the past and today? You know, if you look at South Korea, they've become a cultural mecca of Asia. You know, think of K-pop and think about the large trade zones that happen in, in Seoul with Chinese visitors flocking there, like, in, uh, in large amounts. And so lots of has changed in the last 20 years, including with the United States, which is becoming much more globalized much more integrated. And so we really need to think harder about a game plan going forward, um, which is also what we'll be discussing in the course. Yeah, and, and I mentioned this with uh, Dean Jeff Garrett yesterday, but it is amazing when you think about the, the, the different professors that are involved in teaching this course, it does really highlight 
how diverse this problem is and, and how many viewpoints you have to really come at this problem from. You do. I mean, there's uh, from everything from sociology of how people are responding, uh, the panic, which is a little, often a little bit too extreme and self-reinforcing with pure effects. Um, but then there's, you know, hardcore, you know, obviously uh, science as well as economic reasoning that, uh, that is, uh, we have to give it some thought about. In particular, is, you know, the big goal is really used in my part is to use analytics and economic reasoning and make you know a sense of both the short run as well as creating a, a framework for for the longer run. Well, I think it's interesting, Kent, that you know when you're talking about teaching this class to to students at Wharton, but also there will be uh, members of the UPenn community that will be involved. Uh, right. Young business owners or business owners in general, they factor in a, a certain level of risk into their business planning, but this is extreme risk. And, and I wonder your thoughts on how prevalent you think it is that business owners today think about extreme risk in their business planning. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is going to be how does the government respond to this situation? I mean, what happened in 2008, we created a whole new infrastructure. We're trying to deal with the types of risk that uh, happened there with you know, systemically important financial institutions and things like that. I mean, part of the, you know, in the short run, part of the problem is that the data that we're seeing, um, people are misinterpreting in many cases. There's large selection bias, and for example, in the mortality rates. I mean, when you're only testing symptomatic people, it creates a big uh, selection bias. So, for example, in the United States, even with the common flu, if you only test symptomatic people, uh, the mortality rate is about 5 to 7%. If you only look at people who are admitted to the hospital, it's over 10%. And so it, a lot of the data that we're currently getting is actually heavy, heavy sample selection bias. And then even some of the exponential growth models that people are talking about, again, you, uh, the, the, all, often those models are not really taking into account a lot of human uh, interactions, the changes in network designs, uh, things like that. So part of that is, you know, really understanding data that you're getting. And so then that you can start to think about doing more rational cost-benefit analysis. So as a society, you know, individual business owners have to make decisions. But first thing I think it comes as a society and as the government, are we going to make a more rational cost-benefit analysis in terms of trade-offs between, you know, on one hand, we have a limited supply of hospital beds. On the other hand, we're causing tremendous economic harm to very – uh, you know, at-risk populations in the hospitality industry, very hard to make them whole um, as a result of this. And so it, and one of the things that uh, is if we go back to the, even before 2008, I was in the U.S. Treasury during 9-11, and um, in particular, uh, what came out of 9-11 was a national advisory system on terror. Uh, we really don't have that type of system when it comes to non-terror uh, viral risk. Um, in particular, we don't have a uh, you know coded system of the different color codes, things like that. And the reason uh, when we have that lack of federal type of advisory system, you get a tremendous amount of inefficiencies, both a lack of planning ahead of time, but you can actually get overreactions when a risk actually um, manifests itself. And so a lot of this will be how will the government respond to this? Are they going to create a, a, a planning system going forward that is going to be um, essentially the equivalent of what we did with terror, or are we going to just continue on the current path? And if we continue on the current path, then, yeah, businesses, especially in hospitality, uh, especially in, you know, where there's lots of, you know, people are gathered of, of outside of your normal networks, uh, outside of your workplace and so forth, uh, those those are going to be you know um, uh, 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 companies that are going to have to um, uh, think very hard uh, about this uh, risk going forward. So Ken, a little bit of breaking news: just a couple of minutes ago, Secretary Mnuchin uh, came out and, and stated that they are going to move the tax filing deadline back to July fifteenth. Uh, so making that move of pushing it back three months, what kind of an impact does that have? Yeah. I mean, so originally it was you still had to file by April, but then you could, if you owed money, you know, yep. you could do it. 
uh, tax free. And then, you know, the problem, <laughs> I even have this problem too, is man, I, my CPA is still not, you know, in the state of PA, the governor, governor just shut down all businesses. Um, he's an executive authority that were not life essential uh, supporting. And so, you know, even getting to your CPA can be a challenge. And so it, it, in terms of, um, you know, the revenues to the government, the government's going to get their money. Um, it's not going to be uh, a big impact on, on that. It will create a big liquidity amount of liquidity for people. Not really. Um, they're, they, they have to pay the taxes either way. Uh, pushing off a couple of months is not going to be a big issue. Ken, thanks very much for your time. Greatly appreciate you joining us today. My pleasure, as always. Thank you. Kent Smetters from the Wharton School joining us here on the show. And finally, we are joined by Dr. Ezekiel Emanuel, Penn's Vice Provost for Global Initiatives and Chair of the Department of Medical Ethics and Health Policy. His interview from March 23rd talks about the role that the healthcare business will play in eradicating the coronavirus and how businesses must factor in these elements of risk moving forward. Zeke, great to catch up with you. Thank you, sir. Nice to be here. Thank you. So obviously it's it's very important. Speaking about the course that is going to be starting today, it is a very important component for those people kind of in the business segment to know so much more about what is going on right now and what maybe they need to think about in the future. Totally. I mean, well, you know, there's all sorts of aspects to this, um, but I would uh, emphasize that um, – you know, we have had over the last 20 years, almost every two to three years, like clockwork, some major infectious disease outbreak, whether it's Ebola, H1N1, SARS, uh, MERS, um, Zika. Uh, you know, we're talking and teaching to uh, people in the uh, business community, but, you know, it's part of business strategy now. You have to take account of this stuff and you're going to have to make decisions in, uh, about how you run your business, knowing that infectious outbreaks and infectious emergencies are not only possible, probable, and how are you going to structure your business to take account of that and to keep going uh, in the face of it. But even though there have been these outbreaks in the past, is there enough of a recognition? And maybe I know the answer to this question before you even get to it. Is there enough of a recognition that these are, are elements that, that companies need to consider now on a more routine basis? It's, it's, yes, not just routine. It is part of your business. You need to do this. You're an inadequate uh, C-suite member if this isn't part of what you're doing on a regular basis. So. What is uh, what is the message then that, that you want to drive home and, and what will be your part, uh, your teaching uh, during this course? Well, I am actually talking about some of the tough decisions in the medical community um, and how, you know, how to think about rationing and allocation. You know, I presume that, well, at, at Wharton, we have a, a huge number of healthcare management people who are going to go into healthcare management, either at the payer level or the provider level or the public health level or who knows what uh, uh, level. Um, they may run hospitals. They may run uh, larger health systems. Um, how do you think about a rationing situation? How, you know, how do you do it in the most ethical manner? I don't know how many of, uh, of our listeners um, saw Ted Koppel yesterday on CBS, but he he was interviewing people about these tough choices, and you could see every single person he interviewed, including bioethicists, frontline doctors, were squirming in their seat to avoid rationing decisions. We all hate rationing decisions. Choosing one person over another, especially when it's a life and death situation, is horrid. Nothing short of horrid. One of the doctors uh, who had had to do it in Haiti you know, basically broke down and cried. Yeah. Um, uh, but you're going to do it, you got to do it ethically. That's probably the only solace and, and, and thing that will assuage your, your subsequent uh, psychological distress is if you can do it in an ethical manner. And, um, you know, part of what I'm going to talk about is how do you think about these really, you know, the toughest decisions maybe in life. So what about the, the, the supply issues that, that we hear talked about a lot in terms of the masks that are necessary and the ventilators as well? And and I think a lot of people, 
again, we're trying to wrap our head around the the size of all of this and the amount of equipment that is needed. I think some people be like, why is the United States as strong as we are economically not having enough of this equipment that's necessary? But then again, when you think about the size of it, it it is a a significant need that that maybe goes well beyond what we're normally used to. Well, I mean, the, the, the short answer is in normal operations, you know, having, call it, a, you know, 100,000, that's probably a high exaggeration, but 100,000 ventilators is fine, right? We can manage with 100,000 ventilators. There may be a spot shortage in this hospital or that hospital uh, if there's a big ep- episode, you know, fires or, or uh, accidents or something. Um, but the system's not built. You can't just have these things mothballed and waiting I mean, you can have, we have about 10 to 20,000 in the strategic reserve, but you can't have, you know, 200,000 or 300,000 in the strategic reserve for a once in a century event. That's just not efficient. Um, on the other hand, we haven't figured out, well, if we're not going to have these in mothballed in reserve ready to go, and by the way, they're not just sitting there because you have to make sure that they work, you have to replace them every few years, right. uh, et cetera. Um, how can you ramp up production? What's our backup plan for ramping up production? And we had, we didn't have that. And, and I guess, you know, it does appear now that a couple of years ago, the president was informed of this and nothing was done to remedy the situation, anticipating, ah, we haven't had since 1968 a pandemic. We're not likely to have another pandemic. Uh, and so, you know, is- it, 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 we, we need more. Uh, let me, let me back up. When I was in, in, the White House, my boss, Peter Orzeg, one of the smartest uh, people I've ever known and, and really thoughtful uh, person, um, kept saying, you know, we're focused on the, the big problems now. One of the things we need to think about is the low probability but high harm uh, events, ones where, you know, unlikely to occur, but if they occur, you know, it's really a disaster. Right. And we're not good as human beings or as organizations in thinking about that. If, if, the coronavirus situation has told us anything. We need to be better about thinking about those low probability but high impact events. What has this? Uh, what has been going through this meant for uh, the UPenn health system on the larger scale? If you can for a moment, because I read an article over the weekend that nurses from the hospital are out there working at at some of the drive-through stations set up here in the Philadelphia area. Yeah. Well. Uh, I have to say, uh, I don't like that <laughs> personally. I think that's not a uh, optimal uh, uh, situation um, because I think you don't want to endanger a nurse, highly trained, uh, very essential for treatment and care um, when he or she is sticking a swab in the back of someone's throat to get a sample. That is not a, uh, I mean, it, it's not nothing, but it's not super highly skilled, but takes years of skill to learn. And we should not be having highly skilled nurses and doctors doing that uh, sampling. Is it your expectation that that from the medical side of this right now, we are going to see, and, and it has been talked about a lot uh, in the last couple of days, that this week and maybe next week, we will see a ramp up of the numbers of cases diagnosed because you see more and more testing out there? Uh, that's, that's undoubtedly true. Uh, you know, uh, no ifs, ands, or buts. Um, you know, the fact of the matter is, uh, the data we have today, so the data we have on March 23rd, uh, reflects what happened two weeks ago, you know, March 9th, March 8th. Um, and so there's no doubt that over the last two weeks, we had a pretty big spread of the virus. If only because there's crazy people still partying in Florida on the beaches, in the bars. Um, People aren't taking the shelter-in-place physical distancing uh, suggestion seriously. And that's going to lead to widespread uh, dissemination of the virus. Uh, New data from, you know, places like Iceland and others suggest that half the people who have this virus are totally asymptomatic and are passing it without knowing anything. That is, you know, a, a serious, serious problem. And, uh, you know, we need to, people have to understand uh, that's how people die. And I, uh, the other thing is I don't think people have a, a good sense 
uh, for how serious um, this could be. You know, the Imperial College report has, um, what is it, 2 million people potentially dying in the United States. Mm. Let me just put that into context. That increases our annual mortality rate by 70%, right? It yep. means that, you know, if you have a thousand Instagram, uh, what are they, followers or whatever the hell they're called, yes. um, you know, seven to 10 of them are going to die from coronavirus. Um, or to put it, my last analogy is, you know, that is 20, 20 Hiroshima bombs. And the reason the Hiroshima example is better than the war, you know, it's more than all the people who died in every American war, including the Civil War and World War II, is those, you know, Civil War, World War II happened over four years. Hiroshima happened in a minute, right? And this virus is going to happen in a very compressed time uh, in terms of mortality. And uh, it's not going to happen over four years. It's going to happen in months um, and very compressed time. And I think, you know, again, we're not really appreciating that. Zeke, I know you're a very busy man. Thank you for giving us a few minutes today. And uh, we will talk to you again down the road. Thank you, sir. Thanks. Take care. Thank you, Dr. Ezekiel Manuel from here at the University of Pennsylvania. Thank you for listening to our podcast special, Wharton, on managing uncertainty. We hope you were able to take away some information that will help you get through this crisis. A special thanks to our SiriusXM staff, as well as the Wharton School, including the Marketing Communications Department, in bringing together all of these interviews. And don't forget that you can listen to Wharton Business Daily on SiriusXM Channel 132 every weekday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific.